Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton, and this morning I'm here with Hayden Hagerman. Maybe in the midst of the COVID virus, that everybody's going to face the evil inherent in death. And it's, it's a good time to describe really bad answers. So let's maybe go over the answer to the problem of evil is normally kind of resolved or the the token answers that that we we hear and i think once we have in mind the normal answers that we hear and the misunderstandings then kind of by way of the negative can we get at the proper response or answer to it because i think that is latent in itself in the film are these wrong answers to the problem of suffering and the problem of evil what are some of the, I guess, token responses that you you hear offered why evil happens? We can always expect the same bad answers. It's just inevitable. Sure. That you know that some television preacher or somebody is going to say, God is punishing us. And so there is the answer that I, I would call just a straightforward theodicy, a friend of Job's sort of answer. You know, Job, why are you suffering? Mm-hmm. Oh, no mystery. It's because you're a sinner uh, that clearly you've in some way done something wrong. And when Job would dare to say that he has not, that he's innocent, they call him a blasphemer because God would not punish the innocent. And of course, somebody who says God did it, it's the most unchristian thing you could possibly say. It's to miss the whole scope, the whole meaning of Christianity. But that's just the rejoinder that we get again and again. Was it during the tsunami? I can't remember the evangelist Mm -hmm. who said, oh, it's the punishment for homosexuals, which makes no sense at any level. But, uh, and I think he specified that it was the- (laughs) How how are those two correlated? (laughs) I think he thought it may have involved one of the Teletubbies who was particularly effeminate the purple Teletubby. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't in the States at this time, so I uh, I may not. <laughs> so there oh, would so be... it's not your problem, so I got to deal with it now. <laughs> <laughs> I got yeah, was... to come up. I got to make some in, intelligent, intelligible comment about something that is inherently unintelligible. Uh, I think that's number one bad answer. Okay, And that may be the worst possible answer to to the problem of evil is the most pervasive answer that you're going to get in Christian circles. Mm -hmm. If you go to a a school and you study up on it, you know, and they tell you the answer, it may not sound quite so crude, but the various theodicies that you're going to get, uh, even I'm thinking here of the guy at Oxford, University, Richard Swinburne, yeah, Yeah. just appalling. I think his thought is just atrocious, but he couches it in academic talk and explanation so that Richard Swinburne really will just give you the answer to the problem of evil. You can read his book and the problem's resolved for you. So though I'm describing it very crudely, and we often hear it 
in crude fashion, oh, you could spend a lifetime studying this crudity and imagine that that mm -hmm. there's something there. And I think this is the most appalling of answers and precisely the most anti-Christian of answers. So it's a deeply appalling answer and one that is commonplace. But there's one, and maybe it's predicated on this one, there's one that's just as, as bothersome to me and not merely bothersome, but morally loathsome. But it's that this was the plan of God that this was uh, necessary or needed for the sake of a final, more glorious end of all things. This is the sort of, of thing that I hear quite regularly from people in, in just kind of the everyday banalities of, well, God has a, a purpose and reason for everything. That one's even more lo morally loathsome. And I think that one is the one that um, is extremely present in the film. You have Mrs. O'Brien crying to her minister, and he says something along the lines of, well, he's in God's hands now. Her repost is, he was in God's hands the whole time. You have her mother saying to her, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and that's that's how he is. And soon, soon the pain will subside. In the film, Mrs. O'Brien winces, and she says, you know, I don't want the pain to go away. I just want us to think about what kind of picture of God that gives us if we say, you know, every instance of evil, every act of suffering, every death, every pain has intelligibility because it, it's the plan of God. It's the divine purpose of God. I want people to just to sit with that for a second mm. and to think, okay, so why is it the plan of God? And if the answer is because the final end of all things will be glorious because of it, then you're left with thinking of all these horrendous acts of suffering, not to mention just the ordinary, random, seemingly meaningless acts of suffering that take place, and then say, okay, all of that was necessary so that there could be this, this greater, higher, more glorious state of affairs in the end. That's wicked. I mean, that's really, really despicable. And that's that's the sort of thing that Ivan Karamazov and the brothers Karamazov rages against. He rages against the idea that there is a God, and he assumes that there is. This is what's so fascinating about uh, that chapter, The Grand Inquisitor and the Brothers Karamazov, is that Ivan, Ivan just takes for granted that all of this is the part of the plan of God, that God is orchestrated all this stuff and allowed for it so that he can use all of that to bring about a, a greater state of affairs. And he says, I'll grant you that. But if that's the case, if there is a plan behind every single instance of suffering, death, and evil, then I'm going to turn back my ticket to the kingdom of God. <laughs> so if evil is necessary for God to bring about a more glorious state of affairs, then I think Ivan's right. Ivan is deeply right. It's time to turn back the ticket. It's time to rebel because that is a, a God who is morally loathsome, <laughs> who, who is not worthy of worship. And I think to worship him is going to be skewed yeah, worship. Indeed. Indeed. Because you wind up saying hideous things of, you know, God caused some horrific act to happen. So, so as to demonstrate some attributes of his that we wouldn't otherwise know well i'd hate to know what those attributes are this gets to the nature versus grace discussion 
I think in what you have in Malik is there is the possibility of recognizing, in other words, there is the Jack before his recognition of transcendence. There is Mr. O'Brien. There is a natural world. And if you were just to extrapolate to God from the world, I think that's the God that you would get, a kind of cosmic God. And it doesn't really matter which God. I think this is, you know, in primitive religion or in idolatrous religion or in animism. I lived in Japan for 20 years. You know, the the main business of the gods is tragedy, mm-hmm. that they start fires, they tend to kill people off. And the point of the religion to a large extent is to, in some way, assuage their evil doing. We talk in the West, we talk about demons and gods, but in Shintoism, there's really no distinction that there are these demonic-looking figures that guard the temple. A natural religion, one that extrapolates from the cosmos, a closed cosmic order to God, and I think you can do that either as a Christian, and what you get is probably something very much like divine satisfaction, penal substitution, the Calvinistic notion that God requires evil, or the Augustinian portrayal of the delights of witnessing those burning in hell. In other words, that the good and the evil all get mixed in together, and we still use the language good and evil, but very much like in a kind of Eastern pantheistic monism. The words really don't mean very much, because the good requires the evil, and the evil then is a means to the good, so that the two things inhere in one another. And so I think that's the idea that you're describing. That's a form of Christianity. But I think that's also a predominant form that you find in many religious systems. No doubt Christians may hold to that. And you'll always see the Christians coming into the fray in times like these, giving explanations. Even the most theologically learned will will give answers that are but sophisticated, ingenious replications of the, the crude version that you, you gave earlier of that, you know, God caused it. But it's not Christian. I think this is what's so profound about Ivan's intuition is that it's that intuition is such that only a Christian could come up with. That is, when you look at the figure of Christ in the New Testament, nowhere, nowhere does he does he try to explain evil. He laments it and he heals it. He does not assume that it's part of the good purpose of God. He attacks it vehemently. This is the the Christian difference. No evil and suffering and pain is not part of the plan of God. It's precisely the opposite. Um, But because God is this... this, And that's what makes it evil. Yeah, that precisely. But because God is the source of goodness and the end of goodness, not even contingencies and absurdities can thwart his purpose. Not even free creatures who participate in his infinite goodness, precisely because they're free creatures and are created out of nothing, can do evil, can thwart his good purposes. That's a different sort of answer than God needs this, or God. Ha- this is all part of God's plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not necessarily an explanation. No, it's 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 not. It's but just a natural corollary of the fact that God has created free creatures 
who participate in his goodness, but who are nevertheless made out of nothing. And so precisely because they are made out of nothing can strive after lesser goods and try to will towards nothingness, but can never finally thwart God's outworking of goodness in all things. Because if if we say, like some of Job's comforters in the movie say, you know, like this is the plan of God, then we wind up with some conclusions that there are certain goods that can only be accomplished by God in his creatures by way of evil, which makes God the cause of evil and reifies evil as a substance. Or we're left with some other conclusions, which is that God's original prohibition was, in a way, a sort of lie because uh, he was going to reward it anyway, which would make him unjust too, that or he's divided against himself. And so it's a, it's a very wicked kind of picture if we render the history of suffering and death meaningful and intelligible by saying that it is part of God's plan. Um, no, it's not. No, it's not. Probably you would be better off, and this would be my other bad answer, and that is just as an atheist, or not necessarily an atheist, uh, a religion on the order of Buddhism, which is a sort of form of atheism, or even Hinduism, but I think we've actually already said it, and that is that the very category, evil, is a misunderstanding. There really is no evil. There is only a gaining of perspective. And when you gain perspective, you realize that everything is on a continuum, and there is no such thing. It's a similar move, but it's to say it's a kind of semantic move to just say, well, you're misunderstanding that what you're calling evil is actually the good. In, in many ways, Calvinism mm -hmm. sounds like that, but I think that's the, the common move. I think once you give up the notion of transcendence, there is the inevitable giving up of the notion of either goodness or evil as distinct categories. There's this kind of maybe materialist view of, of the world that would, would say it's, it's primarily about perspective. It's what you, you give to the thing that gives it meaning. And so the things that we normally label as good are but just a consensus of all of us who have agreed that it is good. It's not inherently good. In Buddhism, they still use that language. They may still talk about good and evil. Kitaro Nishida, you know, will still mm -hmm. use the language of good and evil. He'll even use the language of God and Satan. But of course, his notion is, yes, but in a way, I'm greater than either in that I contain both within myself and I can bring about a synthesis between the two categories. And so what, what he's really doing is dissolving the categories within himself. Yeah. So that's precisely Manichaeism and is the sort of thing that I think is present in our own time. I mean, even the way that people portray President Donald Trump, and, and let me qualify this, that I am in no ways a staunch defender of Donald Trump. But I mean, you just read headlines and you would think that this man is an actual embodiment of evil. But that sort of thing, of course, is precisely the thing that Christians ought to reject because evil itself does not have a nature. It is rather non-being who's always, you know, parasitic upon being. And so it's, it's a lack of something. It's not ever, it doesn't ever have its own 
being. It doesn't have an ontology. And so it's precisely that for that reason that Christians can't wind up saying that God needed this thing to happen, this evil thing to happen, because it reifies evil. It gives it substance. It gives it a nature. It gives it being and therefore makes it intelligible. But if evil lacks being, if evil is always a parasitic upon the good, then it can't have intelligibility to it. To offer an account for why evil happens in the abstract, philosophically or theological, and to engage with that question uh, with the sort of gymnastics we were talking about earlier is wrong-headed. There's already latent in the question a misunderstanding about what evil is. In the COVID crisis, you know, I, I think you could divide up the bad responses into the three categories that we're describing, that some are saying, oh, God did it. Some would say, there is no such thing as evil. Go to the beach, eat, drink, be merry. That may take the form of a kind of nihilistic hedonism, but it's interesting that first things, our Reno, almost seemed to be a part of the go-to-the-beach crowd in his theological understanding. What I'm aiming at here, I'm hoping you'll disagree with. In other words, I agree with you that evil is a parasite on the good. This means that what could be the most powerful force for evil would be to take the greatest good as the parasitic mother of evil and transform it and pervert it. So that it may be that the greatest evil that we encounter in this present moment is a perverse Christianity and a profound perverse Christianity that in some way would imagine that we must embrace death, we must embrace the COVID virus, and that it is then just an outworking that we need to accept. In other words, if we don't accept it, and we imagine that we need to quarantine ourselves, this is the argument of our arena, that we need to in some way battle it. Well, of course, the great danger is that the economy is going to fail. And as Donald Trump has pointed out, he's never explicitly said it. As Ara Reno points out, there may be something worse. And of course, this worst thing is to imagine that in some way, the economy, capitalism, liberal democracy would prove inadequate, that the whole system will come crashing down. Now, you argue for that on the basis of a Christian understanding of the world. I'm afraid that we may be encountering in this moment, in that argument, one of the worst forms, one of the most degraded forms of evil. Yeah, so what's interesting about the Rusty... Now you can argue <laughs> what, What's interesting about Rusty Reno's case is, because I do want to say that it's his case is, uh, is interesting because he himself is a contrarian. <laughs> And uh, he will always be a contrarian. So if everybody's saying the, the emperor has no clothes, he'll be arguing uh, why he does. So that's just, I, th I think, a personality quirk of Rusty Reno. But the other thing is, you know, what is this a distortion of? What is his point of distortion of? And that there is historical precedence for Christians who, in the face of plagues and an illness, in spite of illness, in spite of the potential suffering and death that might occur for them, 
they went out of their way to do the works of mercy and to love others. I think there's a confusion here on Reno's part, which is that to love our neighbors in this time means to put ourselves at risk, when in fact what it looks like to love neighbors at this time is not to go out shopping, not to go to the beach, not to go to our normal places throughout the week where we contribute as good citizens or whatever it might might be. Not even, and I know that this is kind of scandalous, but not even to go to our churches, but instead to love our neighbor in this time, which is, of course, always the answer to the problem of evil. It, now that we're, we're there, if it is in fact an answer, what it looks like to love our neighbors is precisely to practice social distancing, is precisely to put others' immune systems before our own. It is precisely to love others by choosing to grocery shop for them, those who cannot uh, afford to go go out in public and, and have their immune system compromised. So it's, it's that sort of distortion, I think, that's at work in Reno's. And so if we, we put the matter like that, if we recognize what's the good, and then from their reason, okay, well, what's lacking, which is Reno's answer, then we can uh, shy away from the, the Manichaeism problem and not fall into a false worship of the triune Lord. So all that to say, it's, it's not that I, I disagree with you or anything like that. I think that you're, you're spot on. And I think that you're right in looking at what, what's the motive in the first place, uh, because I think you're kind of narrating uh, the first thing spiral for the past five years or so, ever since the 2016 election, what's been undergirding their work. But I think, again, if we frame the context as, what okay, what is there that is good, and therefore reason what is lacking, then we'll, we'll be okay. In the film and in the article by Reno, and in our discussion, there is a similar problem that is posed. And that is that, what, what do we do with death? And I think that in Christianity, we often get this exactly wrong, that we portray the death of Christ, and I'm afraid that's what he was doing. And of course, this whole film is, is really about the futility of the death of a child, that we can often portray Christianity as if death is the answer, that, oh, well, it's in death that we have redemption, right? Because Jesus died for our sins, which is precisely the, the wrong answer. That's every pagan answer. Every pagan sacrificial religion and a pagan Christianity imagines that death is the answer to the problem of life. And in some way, death is a transcendence. Mm -hmm. Death is a doorway. Death is an entry point. Well, death per se is evil. Death per se is the enemy. It is the final enemy to be conquered. And I'm afraid that's what he missed, and I think that's what Malik is getting in the film, is that, oh, there, there is a railing against death. This death is a tragedy that in, in some way is the backdrop to this whole film, that it's the, the kind of the heavy weight, uh, the gravity around which the thing revolves. And of course, again, it, it's not, oh, let's embrace death. The death of this child was a good thing. No, it's evil. It was wrong. And, and so I think that in a Christian understanding, what we have then is Christ's entry into death, 
not because death is a good thing, but because it is, in fact, the final enemy to be defeated in resurrection. Mm -hmm. And that's what you have in the portrayal of the last scenes of the film is a kind of pointer to resurrection. Resurrection is a vision. You know, I think that's true of the imagery of the Bible. We have a lot of visions. It, it is a kind of visual imagery that plays the same role as this film. And that is that it, it's not really something that we should mm -hmm. art, attempt to articulate in the sense of saying, oh, here is an articulated resolution to all of our problems. What we have in place of an articulation is a vision. And I think this is what the film does for us. It gives us a vision, an image, that ultimately may not be completely clear. It's not something that we can reduce to a formula or a proposition, but it is something that can capture our thinking and toward which we can walk without having a complete understanding or comprehension. And I think, isn't that the beauty of cinema? that cinema can do that. You know, in a sense, the scenes in the Bible portraying the afterlife and even the intermediate state are cinematic. They're not meant to simply be reduced to proposition. Yeah, and I think that's astute. I think James McClendon makes uh, a point like that in his, uh, his second volume, in Systematic Theology, making sure that we continually have in mind kind of the pictures of Scripture for when we're thinking about theological problems. One thing that you were saying made me think of a, a quote from David Bentley Hart's The Doors of the Sea, and I might be paraphrasing the quote, but he says, I take comfort in when I see the death of a child, not because I see God in it, but I see God's enemy. It's the death of a child that is, is not God's handiwork. It's not the face of God, but it's God's enemy. That is the death, the death of the child, not the child itself, of course. I think that's wonderfully put. And I think that's what we, we see here in this film, The Tree of Life. Uh, there's something in, in Mrs. O'Brien's rage and desire to let the pain be there that is inherently Christian because it's, it's something that doesn't want to explain this thing away. It's not something that wants to explain why the little child whose, whose house burn, burns down in the film has his scars even in heaven. It's instead one that rages against it. It's one who, uh, who, who recognizes that this is not the way that it should be. And by God, that Christ has come to, to deal with this head on and to heal it. The scene I was just alluding to is one of my favorites where in heaven, the little boy who has been burned, I mean, ha you know, his hair is mostly patchy because of burns. You see him being comf comforted by the guide. And I love that because it, it gets to the imagery of, of Revelation where tears are, are wiped away. Mm. The tears aren't explained, right? But they're wiped away. And the scars, even in the body of Christ, even in his glorified body, aren't undone. They're still there. There's not an intelligibility given to them other than the fact that God has brought this thing, this one who was dead, back to life. That's good. Uh, in fact, I had missed that. I had missed that connection. There's a, there's several scenes of death in the film. The child drowning in the pool, the house fire. The film is tinged with tragedy throughout. 
and maybe tragedy is the wrong word because mm-hmm. tragedy in some way depicts an evil to which there is no ultimate mm-hmm. resolution. And so it's not simply tragic, but it is. it takes on a sublimity in that th- there is a counter image, if not a, a resolution or if not a theodicy or, yeah. or something like right. that. Right. I guess to sum up some words that we've been saying uh, about the problem of evil and suffering, I hope that when people hear this, that they hear that we're saying that the history of suffering and death lacks meaning to it. But I, I hope that they don't just hear that, but I hope that they also hear that it would be much more horrendous and terrible and frightening if death and suffering did have a meaning to them. I hope that's what viewers get when they, they see the tree of life, that if we go with those who are comforting Mrs. O'Brien and try to ascribe a meaning and plan and purpose to the suffering of the innocent or any sort of suffering, the death of a child, a three-legged dog, mm-hmm. um, you know, whatever it might be, if we give meaning and a plan to that, just what a what a wicked and vile God it would be that we worshipped. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's the beauty of the film is that it uh, continually it deals with real life issues. In the midst of that, we see God's grace and beauty. So that's sort of the the message. Oh, it was there all the time. That God was there in all of those things, and all you had to do was be able to turn and see God. And I think so much of our lives, so much of my life, maybe we we're continually in pursuit of something that is always presenting itself in our immediate situation and context. And just one more point. I think one thing that we have to also acknowledge is that there is a a venerable tradition stemming all the way back to the the New Testament that does recognize that our sufferings, while themselves not inherently intelligible or meaningful, can be, be used by the good grace of God to unite us to Jesus and love for God and for neighbors so that we have St. Paul saying that he's he's filling up what's lacking in the body of Christ in terms of his afflictions. And we have uh, the apostles rejoicing that they're flogged because it makes them like Jesus. And so we have even in the film that this suffering of Mrs. O'Brien and the family, while not inherently intelligible and while not the plan of God, can nevertheless be used to God's good purposes by way of his providence to unite us to his son. And I think that's that's what Reno misses, you know? I think that's what Reno misses. He thinks that we naturally put ourselves out there to suffer so as to be uh, united to to Christ. And I, I, I don't think that's the way it goes. I think it's precisely that you live as a Christian Uh, You love your neighbor and you will experience suffering along the way and you worship the God in hope, not in optimism, but in hope that he will further unite uh, you to his son. That is the perfect ending. Hayden, thank you for this wonderful conversation. My pleasure. Always enjoy it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.